Welcome to Everyday Entrepreneurs Everywhere with your host, Chris Parker. And welcome back to Everyday Entrepreneurs Everywhere. This is Chris Parker, and I'm with John Sane coming in from South Africa. Now, I have to admit that I have found John from Lance Pepler's podcast, so the business bookshelf. So I will put a link to that as well into the show, the, the show notes so you can go find Lance's podcast. And I was so intrigued by John's story that I reached out to him. And John, thank you so much for making the time today to, to jump on and have a conversation. So um, John, can you help me out and just what do you do and why do you do what you do? Well, thank you so much for having me, Chris. Uh, great to be here. Um, I help organizations build more courage about the future. I try and help decision makers find the clarity to be able to think about things that they often don't have the luxury or are fearful to think about. So I categorize and contextualize the future based on human need states, um, as well as deal with the behaviors within leadership that stops us from doing things that are really about the future rather than the now. I think many businesses are stuck not only in the now, but in the past. And so mm -hmm. my work is about doing keynotes. It's about doing workshops, masterclasses, writing books, writing blogs, making vlogs. And somebody actually called me once a, a knowledge mercenary. And uh, they were actually talking about this idea that there are these types of careers now that are growing where people travel around the world, uh, taking on a lot of information and knowledge and then helping other people uh, sort of understand that knowledge in a better way to make more courageous decisions about the future. So I kind of like that, like a knowledge mercenary has a bit of a dangerous, cool vibe to it. So I'm going to go with that. I like it as well. Knowledge mercenary. It does sound a bit mysterious and dangerous. And yeah. John, why this line of work? Why the knowledge mercenary work? Um, mm. I, I know. I, again, I know a little bit of the story from Lance's podcast. So yeah. you had some some trials and tribulations in in your professional life. So um, you know, can you share a little bit about that and how that has evolved in what you're doing now? Yeah, sure. Of course. I look. I think. You know, my, my third book, Foresight, I wrote about the fact that we've all got this hidden talent within us that can connect invisible dots of something to another thing. And we know we can see this with interior designers. They've got this ability to see a place or a home or an office before any of us can. Hairdressers can do that with our hair. Football coaches can do that with football. I can do it with the future. I have no idea why. I don't know what happened from a very young age. I was an early adopter. And I've always been able to take very complex sort of scenarios and simplify them, I think really for my own sake, to try and understand them myself. And I kind of woke up at 40 years old and realized that nobody else thought like I did. I kind of thought that everybody saw the world like I did. And then as I shared more and more stories and as I like sort of engaged with this information more, I just realized that other people weren't seeing it like I was seeing it. And so... I now get paid to share stories and to write books. And uh, it's a wonderful privilege to be living in a time where this is possible. Um, and obviously, you know, my, the story uh, is that I was from a single mom family. I, uh, we were always financially challenged. So I made a decision from a very young age. I think I was like 13 or even younger that I just never wanted to be financially challenged. I saw the strain my mom was taking and I just made a promise to myself. I never want to be poor. 
And those words haunted me for the next sort of few decades because I never said I wanted to be rich. I said I never wanted to be poor. I never, I never wanted to be poor again. And we must be careful what we wish for, wish for because I wish that I'd said I want to be rich because I made a lot of money in my 20s and I went bankrupt in my early 30s. And this really got me onto this trajectory of trying to figure out what happened in my mind. Why did I stop being innovative? What put me into a comfort zone? How did I lose so many businesses that were so successful at one time and then all of a sudden weren't? And so really it was about trying to solve in my own head what had happened in my own life, both psychologically and as far as trends and innovation was concerned. And I started helping small businesses not do what I did. And now I work with governments and blue chip companies around the world, sort of just sharing my own experience and creating methodologies for my own experience that can help them. And I, and I think it's kind of put me in a unique position because I haven't been to university. I haven't worked for a McKinsey's. I haven't worked for an ex-go, um, ex uh, from Salim. I haven't, I haven't worked for anybody to teach me. This has all been self-taught through informal education. And so my stories I find are unique and are surprising because I don't come from a world that usually makes and creates people like me. I love it. That's a little bit the premise of this whole podcast, Everyday Entrepreneurs Everywhere, is, is oftentimes I, I find people who don't have that traditional MBA background that have found, quite frankly, better, more simple, more elegant ways of, of, of getting things done. So, um, yeah, I'd love to learn from you about that on this, on this little short journey we have together. Can you dive into a little bit the, the language? Because you said you wish you would have been saying, I would rather be rich sure. than poor. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I also have a belief that the, the language we use really um, inspires, I guess, our, our awareness or our consciousness to focus on different things. What, what is your perspective on that? So two things. Uh, I wrote a whole chapter on language and in my, in my third book again. And what I said there is that language, often people think that it's just a commentary of our life. And people will say, you know, the airport's always a mess. Traffic's always crazy. Kids are all over the place. And what they actually doing is not commentating, but creating. And it's almost like, you know, your, your words are made up of very powerful intentions. And actually, if you think about what we learned when we went to school, the very first thing we learned when we went to school was how to spell. And if we take the word spell out of English and put it into magic terms, what are we doing? We're creating spells every time we speak. And the second thing we learned how to do at school was to build sentences. And so every time we speak, we sentence ourselves to a life based on the magic spells we've chosen to choose in our language. So really, we must realize that even language itself is telling us the secrets of what it's trying to do for us. And so I'm a very, very big proponent of utilizing language, both internally and externally. That's all focused on what I want, not what I don't want. And this is coming back to your question is that often we are very, very clear about what we want, what we don't want, but we don't really know what we do want. And I, this is my second book. I, I started off with a line that says, are you running away from the darkness or are you running towards the light? And from the outside, this person looks exactly the same. They are motivated, goal-driven, ambitious, except one of them is motivated by anxiousness and the other one is motivated by excitement. And the one that's motivated by anxiousness is the one that's running away from the darkness. The one who says, I don't want to be poor anymore. Yeah. That's an anxious statement. And guess what? These things always catch you. They have a tail that comes around and catches you again. 
And so what we have to do is realize that the powerful statement would have been, I want to build wealth. I want to have an impact on the world. Uh, and I want to do it in a collaborative way or, you know, in a seamless way. Uh, but I didn't choose those words. And I remember in my 20s when I was running my restaurants and retail stores and doing so much, I remember telling so many of my customers and friends that I never want to be poor again. It was weird because I kept repeating it without realizing what I was actually doing. Yeah. And then yeah. around 30 years old, I had to declare bankruptcy. And, and for like five years, I, I really was in a state of massive depression. And the thing with depression is that you don't even know you're depressed. It's kind of like it slowly seeps into your consciousness. And the thing next time you turn around, you're a deep victim. You're shameful. You're embarrassed. And uh, I had to go through that and get out of that. And now I'm in a much more powerful place to help other people um, not fall into that trap and, and to help them and advise them on what to do next. Cause I've been there and I, and I felt that pain. Yeah. And, um, would you agree that, that people need to go through that pain in order to discover what they really desire or could you have, could you have skipped that? Do you think? Well, I think that our age group, um, and older and maybe even a little bit younger than me, I'm 45. Our software programming requires us to go through pain. I think the newer humans that are arriving, these higher consciousness beings, they don't have to go through this. They, they've almost come with different software. And it's almost like, you know, you and I are running iOS 4. These kids are coming in with iOS 15, right? And they just have a different way of doing it. So I think for me, absolutely, unfortunately, I did have to go through the pain. I think them, I don't think they have to go through the pain. So yes, I did have to go through it and, and I'm still going through challenges, you know, of different sorts, but uh, it's important to see them as gifts, sometimes wrapped in sandpaper, but they're still gifts. Absolutely. And I think every, yeah, for me, I, you know, every time I have some sort of, sort of challenge, contrast, disappointment, you know, you know, embrace it and then, okay, what, 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 why did this happen? You know, did, did I create this, for example, with my language or, you know, you know, what part did I play in this as opposed to being a pure, pure victim? Um, I will, I will have to say, John, that, that you have made me very frustrated though, recently, because I heard the podcast with, with Lance about your new book and I immediately went to Amazon and I couldn't find it. So what is happening? Okay. With, is it no, here? Okay. Is it there now? So Absolutely. tell me. It's been there for ages. Tell us have, you about looked up, have you looked up Future Next? You must have. Yeah. Tell us about this, the Future Next book while I'm searching up on Amazon. No, definitely. I've had other people receive it in Europe. So I know that it's definitely with Amazon.co.uk. Um, it's there. So I, I see the book, it. I yeah. see it. Oh, good. Okay. Ordering. Okay. My, my frustration has been relieved. <laughs> okay, good. Well, good. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad I could help. Um, look, I started writing this book in lockdown and it's broken up into three phases. The first phase is what do you do on an emotional level to deal with such massive uncertainty and upheaval? And so I talk about eight different tool sets that I used. I call that part of the book future. Now, what do you do in the now to determine your future? And that's an emotional story. That's your memories, your belief systems, and those sort of things. The second part is called future how, is how do we reimagine a new socioeconomic system? How do we reimagine a world that is more transparent, more fair, and more just for the whole world? And the third part is future next, which is the guidebook 
on how to become an active member, an active citizen, employee, employer, entrepreneur, and policymaker that is involved in this new renaissance that's coming. Now, we all know that death and destruction is always followed by birth and recalibration. And if we just think back to the 14th century where we had the Black Death, and the Black Death devastated most of Europe, it ended feudalism, their capitalism of the day. It created a whole new type of culture and society. And then around the 15th, 16th century, we saw the beginning of the Italian Renaissance, where we started to celebrate knowledge, beauty, and art, which was brand new. People were in survival mode a few hundred years before that. And now all of a sudden, we were talking about beauty, art, and sculptures. We must realize that this COVID-19 is saying uh, goodbye to the old world. It's imploding all the structures that we once were totally enamored by and trusted. For example, education, politics, religion, all these things were absolutes when we were younger and 20, 30 years ago. Today, religion is dying out around the world. Education, people know that they, what they're studying isn't maybe relevant for the future, but they've got nothing else to do, so they might as well do that. Uh, the institution of marriage is being questioned all around the world. And politics, my God, we all know the minute any politician opens its mind, mouth, we all straight away like, oh, my God, this is rubbish. You know, it just depends which news channel showing you what and what propaganda. This is all happening right now in front of our eyes. And it's the implosion of the old world. So I wanted to write this book that would help you emotionally, help you reimagine and also help you be an active participant of the new renaissance. Uh would you agree that, that, at least in my perspective, you know, people, very broadly defined, have been losing faith in those institutions for, for quite a while? And, and now with COVID, um, that lack of faith just really became top of mind. And if that's true, then what is it that people will have faith in again? You know, if you can look into that that crystal ball. Um, I'm really, really curious because I also see this, this, you know, for me, this, I, I recently wrote a, um, a guest post thing for, uh, and they said, what did 2020 mean to me? And, and actually what I discovered was a lot of opportunity and beauty and, you know, like, Hey, this is, this is a great reset and, and, and confronting. Yes. But also a source of, you know, abundance and beauty. Um, so what do you think we'll have faith in, in the future? Um, look, I, what I decided to do was really try to think, what do you have to do now? Um, and when I started, let me give you context first. When I started writing the book, it was at the beginning of COVID and the beginning of lockdown. And so I started writing about future now. What do you do in the now to create a future that is more elegant and more seamless and calmer and more accepting of uncertainty? So the first part of the book is called Future Now, and it's eight different tool sets and emotional sort of uh, processes that we could carry and work with uh, to be able to have a level of comfort and ease with so much uncertainty. <clears throat> so one of them, for example, is mourning your future memories. A lot of our future is uh, based on expectations that we've had of it. And we all know that COVID either postponed or canceled all of our future. And so in order to really catalyze ourselves into developing new, bolder, disruptive business models and impact into the world, what we have to do is mourn our old future memories. And so the five stages of mourning are well-documented. They are denial, anger, bargaining, grief, and acceptance. 
And if you don't go through all of them and get to acceptance, you'll be stuck in denial or bargaining or anger. And a lot of people are. If you can look around you, you'll see that a lot of people are hoping and desperate for things to go back to normal. And there just isn't that option because, you know, we've just begun this process. And so there's a lot to come from it still. The second part of the book was motivated because a lot of clients were asking me to go take them back to normal. And so the second part is the reimagination of a new world, a new socioeconomic system that's more fair, more transparent, and more sustainable. And so the second part of the book is called Future How. How do we reimagine a world that has got more, I don't want to call it a socialist because I think socialism has got a lot of problems attached to it. Communism has a lot of problems attached to it. And we're seeing that capitalism has a lot of problems attached to it. You know, I think capitalism is devouring democracy. It's become such a god to just grow at all expenses that it's actually eating itself. You know, it's a cancer upon itself right now. So really it's about reimagine a new socioeconomic system that takes the best out of communism, socialism, and capitalism and creates a new model. Um, and that was sort of like examples of different pockets of people experimenting with different economical uh, sort of projections and, and trials. The third part of the book is called Future Next. And really, it's a guidebook to try and help people at all levels of society become an active participant of Future Next. And so we talk about how every single person is an activist in what they choose to think, engage with, eat, spend their money on. Every time you do anything, you're activizing uh, that perspective. And so we wanted to write a little bit about what do you do as a citizen or a consumer, um, just a basic person? And then what do you do as an employee, an employer, an entrepreneur, and a policymaker? And so we wrote uh, a little bit about each one of them and sort of 10 action points or 10 conversation starters to help us all become part of Future Next, to reimagine what the world could be and for us to be participants of it rather than sitting on the sidelines and being victims of it or angry with it and just saying, well, nothing's ever going to change, which is a defeatist mentality and something that slave traders, women who, who didn't vote and children in labor camps, if they had said that, would still be living with all of those atrocities. So yes, it is a time for us to step up and to become part and parcel of the new world ahead of us. Our voices have never been louder. We've got social media, we've got blogs. We've got so many different ways to get our voices out and start movements. And this book is really just about a conversation starter. Um, definitely. There's a lot of it in there about, you know, how to start conversations. And I think also one of the chapters in future, future next is about policy and policymaking. Yes. I think that's more, more establishing and maybe hardening some of these new paradigms. And the, the, the reason we had that section in there was my co-author, Iraj Abidjan, who's a really well-known economist here in South Africa. Uh, wrote part of the economic constitution for the South African constitution. So he was very much part of the negotiating from the NP, the National Party, over to the ANC. So he's very good friends with our first president, Thabo Mbeki. Well, our second president, Nelson Mandela, was our first mm -hmm. one. And also our current president, Cyril Maraposa. So he's very much in policy. It's not a field of expertise that I have, but that's why I brought him on, so that we could have much richer context into what policymaking should be doing to be able to adjust itself to reflect the world of next rather than the world of past. Well, um, there's, there's so many um, 
<clears throat> triggers in here, and, and, and one of them is the, the world of next. Um, I, I think you're starting from the from an, an assumption of a given that, that the, the world of next will be fundamentally different, and 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 therefore also better potentially, and that's kind of a progressive approach, which I tend to as well. You know, as far as you know, what I perceive as, as forward movement and abundance thinking. However, there's a huge swath of, of society which is more conservative and traditionalist that would find this very fearful. So um, how do, you know, in, in the spirit of reconciliation and, and understanding these different temperaments, I guess, uh, how do you believe we will um, engage in these conversations on while the truths of yesterday are changing, uh, we will still be able to hold something sacred and I, and I still don't know what sacred is because you know we, we've losing, lost faith in government we're losing faith in corporates um, we're, we're losing you know we're, we're losing faith in, in religion um, and there seems to be this vacuum of of what do we as humans still hold sacred and so you know what, what can we still have as a bonding power while moving forward um, so let's remember that our reality is made up of duality. The, the difference between good and bad or pain and healing or fear and love is what gives us context of time as humanity. If we didn't have that, it would be a bland reality that would just be nothing would change. And so time wouldn't even be an effect. It would just be the same. <coughs> and I don't know if we all get it right. But I do know that the duality that we're living in gives us an opportunity to either live in digital dictatorships or in blockchain democracy. And so technology can be used just like a surgeon's knife can be used whether to kill you or to keep you alive. Hmm. And so it's not really about trying to convert everybody. It's trying to bring people into a conversation that's empathetic, that's listening, that's mature, that we can evolve into something new. Now, I also think it's fantastic that a lot of these structures that you've just mentioned are imploding because a lot of them, if not all of them, were about control. And if you think about religion and the way it was brought across, the idea that you were going to go to hell if you weren't up complying, that's control. And for me, it's absolute bullshit because how can God love you and then damn you? I mean, it's a ridiculous notion. But anyway, that's, that's me. Um, also, education. Control you to think in a specific way to be part of a controlled society. Government. Control you. Tax you. So all of the... So name them. Every single one. Healthcare. Even healthcare. It's not healthcare. It's sick care. So to, to mm. create the sickness so they can extend it. So we have to see the implosion of these things in order to be able to bring something new to the world. And so the book is really about not trying to convert everybody, but to open up the dialogue of the possibility of the reimagination of a new world. I think many people are just stuck in the fact that that's just the way it is. That's, that's one way, right? The other way is, well, I've already been successful in many things. I don't want to change too much. And so that's also somebody who's got fearful of they've already been successful. They don't want to change a lot. Other people are just hopeless into the fact that they think that they can't change anything. So it's really about trying to open these conversations yeah. to say, look, we've got a spectrum of people all the way from the left, all the way to the right. And we are not trying to bring the extremes into play. We're just trying to make sure that we have more people into the center 
and more people that are empathetic and heart-led rather than ego and, and, and logic-led. And I think a lot of it, because there's a d- dimension of time, absolutely, and there's, and there's also a dimension of perspective and the evolution of perspective, because, you know, as they say, you know, one man's freedom fighter is another man's terrorist. And uh, there's an old book, in, uh, Finite and Infinite Games, um, which is quite, uh, Simon Sinek sort of did a rewrite recently, but I, I prefer the, the original. And one of the, one of the statements in there, which I've, has haunted me, is, is that the source of evil is always from someone trying to do good. And therefore, it is a matter of perspective over time. And I and I, I think that the you know the, the, the you know to to have some sort of techno utopia where everyone is singing kumbaya and and getting along. Well, I think that's just not in the human. It's not in our nature, really. So the, so I guess the, the question is how do you how do you have that contrast and tension over time and and do it in a way which is humane. So, uh, so I, I love the invitation to you know to say hey these control based structures are, are imploding. Let's you know, engage in, in dialogue and in, in discovering new ways of working together. So, uh, um, yeah, amen to that. In, in, no, the, yeah. Yeah, in the book, you mentioned that, that COVID, and I'm, I'm going to um, use the wrong words, but I think you said that the, the, the COVID was the great accelerator of a lot of these implosions or, or the, the amplifier of, of, of the uncertainty. Um, I feel that as well. And I also think that's a good thing. And, and oftentimes the conversations I'm having is like, how instead of you seeing COVID as a crisis, how can you see it as a collaborator? Meaning, how, how can you, you know, take this and, and, and see what new opportunities there? Maybe that's the abundance thinking, which is, you know, bonding some of us. But Well, look, I think the thing is, is you, you have respond, recover and reimagine. And I think a lot of people are just into respond and recover. They're not into reimagining. Hmm. And when you, when you see it as an opportunity, it becomes an opportunity to reimagine. When you see it as a, a, a prison sentence, you see it as, I need to just get back to where I was before this happened. And I think a lot of the world are there. But as and when this rituals and habits start to instill themselves, we'll start to realize that there is no going back. And when we do go back, like somebody said to me, when are you coming to London? I said, you know, I miss the old London. And I, and, I, and I didn't even realize I was saying that because it is the old London. I don't know what the new London's going to be like. I don't know if I'm going to enjoy it or not like it used to be. And maybe I will, but I, I don't know. It has to be reimagined. That's exactly what London has to do. And I guess every city. But we wanted to do it on a socioeconomic idea to say, look, the narrative that you're running right now, the growth over everything else is an outdated idea. We're just holding on to it because there's nothing else to hold on to. So let's look, reimagine what could we hold on to so we can replace the old anchor with a future anchor, but we still don't know what the future anchor looks like. So, mm. yeah. You know, great. Strong- <clears throat> and also in there somewhere, and, and I might be mixing up the two books because I also have your other book, What's Your Moonshot Here? Um, that, that there was a, a dimension of, in the past, having a... An, 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 society i guess or a market which was complicated and then and then the statement was now it's becoming much more complex and therefore in its complexity and you sort of alluded to complex adaptive systems thinking there meaning meaning um that to to determine consequences on small actions of course become less and less possible um something i'm really busy with and i'm and 
in, in the spirit of, of conversation and challenges, I become more and more fixated on simplicity and, and making things simple is, doesn't necessarily make them less complex in their nature, but, but to, to simplify your understanding of at least what you can influence, I believe is, is a very healthy thing to do and also very hard. So I'm curious if you have a, um, if you can share a little bit more on your, on your, on your complicated versus, versus complex and on, and if simplicity would help, uh, how, how would simplicity help us revision, you know, revisit or, or, or envisage this, this future possibilities? Great question. I, um, there's a great saying that says, if I had more time, I'd have written a shorter letter. Right. And uh, it's, it's, it's that ultimate luxury in essentialism, in minimalism, and in simplicity. And I think it, it comes down to the idea that the idea that we've had around success has been the, um, uh, let me just get the term right, the undisciplined pursuit of more. Right. That has been the indoctrination that we've had from movies like Wall Street in the 90s. Remember that? Just more. Just like, just how much money can you make and how much more can you buy? Gordon Gecko. Greed is good. Right. Yeah. Greed is good. Exactly. Right. And we've got to now come to a point where consciousness and maturity kick in, where we get into a process of the disciplined pursuit of less but better. Yeah. And so if we come, and if we come down to the idea of simplicity or essentialism or minimalism, it really starts to bring it into line for me where we can deal with complicated versus complex. So complicated is a world where patterns are repeated. And so you can utilize automation, mathematics, accounting to work yourself out of those problems. Complexity is a world with patterns that don't repeat themselves. So you cannot utilize linear thinking, automation, equations, those things to work yourself out of them. The simplicity in the response to this is to, and I wrote this about this in my third book, is that in order to get foresight about the future, what you need to do is clean your past and to follow your curiosity. And when I mean clean your past, is to heal past memories that are hurtful so you don't recreate those patterns in your reality in the future. And, <clears throat> and the way you become quite comfortable with uncertainty is to become curious about your subject because you're so focused in on the simplicity of you just following what makes you most excited and why you are put on earth that everything else fades away. The, the tips and turns of the market are just new challenges that you love bringing your curiosity to. And so it's the people that are stuck in the linear thinking that hate this uncertainty. It's just people that expect and are addicted to certainty that don't want to deal with what's coming and love the complicated world because it made them feel safe. But if you are curious about your subject and you've got a healed past, then the simplicity of following your curiosity becomes the most luxurious thing you can do. And you can find yourself enjoying like a growth mindset or anti-fragile says, <clears throat> enjoying new challenges, new twists, new turns and uncertainty, because it's always giving you an opportunity to bring that curiosity into the world in a new format. So for me, it's about diving deeper into my subject, becoming more in depth with what I'm talking about, but then expressing it in any way the market needs me to based on the uncertainty of how people are utilizing my subjects, my projects, my services in a complex world. So I, that's, I, that's kind of it. I, I see it. And I, I think we can make some connections to, to earlier in the conversation where maybe these, these control based structures were put in place by people trying to manage what was, was linear and, the, and complicated. And I think what has happened 
you know, and may, maybe control has always been an illusion because these these structures never really stand. You know, they, they, they're sort of temporary anyhow. And now we're starting to see that actually this playful curiosity discovery as, as a way of moving forward and instead of railing against change, particularly change that you haven't decided on and, and being more acceptance and, and riding that wave, you know, surfing, surfing the change as opposed to being, you know, destroyed by it. Um, that certainly resonates a lot with me. So, um, John, so how can, how can people benefit from your work? Meaning, meaning who would be a, a customer of yours? And, and, and if they go to your, your website, um, how would they be able to, you know, in, engage with you for their, their organization or their own benefit? So I do things in three different ways. I focus on self, the human being, leadership structures, and the future of the organization. So there's always layered because the future of organizations based on exec decisions, which is based on personal development. And so if you're broken in your self-development, you make a terrible part of an Excel uh, exec team. And if you don't understand leadership quotients or how you want to go about doing that, you aren't able to predict, preempt, prepare for a future. So I do keynotes, I do half day or full day strategy sessions, and I do something called sprint strategy masterclasses, where I deal with an exec team or maybe even a whole company where from 8.30 or 8 in the morning to 9.30 in the morning, no matter where you are, I work with your team where we work on one subject, we workshop it in a masterclass format. So depending on whether you're needing future strategies or you're needing some understanding around motivation and inspiration inside your organization, or you want to make them more innovative or more sales driven, or just understand a new culture that the future requires. Those are the things that I do. And I bring in experts or specialists in fields that I'm not good at, but really the ultimate thing is to build more courage and clarity, adaptability and optimism in your organization to deal with uncertainty and challenges in a, in a energetic way rather than in a, in a daunting way, which is what most people do. And the reason they have it in a daunting way is that they're focused on economies of scale, not economies of learning, where they are focused on efficiencies and not robustness. Well, I, I imagine you must be very bored right now because no one wants, you know, clarity or adaptability or optimism. <clears throat> these, these are not things that, that anyone's hungry for these days. So I'm, I'm, I'm very sad to hear <laughs> No, so I, I think yeah, it, it, every, yeah. every, every organization, I'm sure, would pick, perk up their ears. And there's a number of books, I believe, off my count is you have four books. The yes. one was the few, What's Your Moonshot? Um, the most recent is Future Next, and there's, there's two more in between. So if people want to snack there. And John, um, if people want to reach out to you, what is the um, best way for them to connect with you to see if they can um, you know, benefit from your insights for, the, for themselves Thank and their organization? Yeah, look, I, I'm very lucky out of seven and a half billion people, there's only one John Sane. I don't know how I landed with that, mm. but uh, thanks to my parents and my nationality, um, I've got a name called John Sane. And so I'm the only one in the world. So if you Google John Sane, there's a whole bunch of stuff that comes up. But really, uh, hello at johnsane.com. Um, I'm on all the social channels. I'm uh, available everywhere. And then my team, if you just send us a message, my team will be in touch to set up and understand what you require so we can service you. Great. It's incredible because I'm the only Chris Parker in the world as well. That's It's amazing. I doubt that, but I see where <laughs> you're going with this. <laughs> no, I think, I think half the Chris Parkers are female as well. So there's a... There's a oh, you know, is it? No, oh, there, wow. There's okay. no, no shortage of Chris Parkers, but I like to think I'm at least uh, the, but look, the it's, unique it's a cool me. Name. 
<laughs> it is a cool name. It sounds like something like a Spider-Man would have, you know? Very close. There's, um, yes. and, and there's no Peters in the family that I know of, but uh, uh, maybe it's okay. a distant relationship. So, John, thank you so much um, for the insights. And thank you so much for, for I think, also the gifts of your insights in the form of the books and for taking the time. Um, and I, I'd really, uh, you know, celebrate if people are reaching out to you to, uh, to bring some of this energy into the organization during this, this crazy COVID time. So thank you so much. Thank John. you so much, Chris. My absolute pleasure. And thank you for having me on. Ciao. Learn more at ebillion.com slash podcast. 